Welcome to True Vine Church Community's Sermon of the Week. Our hope is that this message would spark and sustain revival in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more information about this podcast and other ways to connect with True Vine, visit us at blessphiladelphia.com. 2019, I asked my daughter, Emma, I said, Emma, what would you like for your birthday? And she said, I would like to go to Disneyland. And I was like, whoa, I was, you know, thinking like which Barbie or, you know, like, you know, do you want uh, bacon on your sandwich at Chick-fil-A? I wasn't thinking Disneyland. So I actually had to tell her, listen, honey, we'll, we'll try to take you someday, but that's, that's expensive and I don't think we're going to be able to go to Disneyland. Within two weeks, I got a phone call where I was given free flights, three nights in a hotel, free tickets to Disneyland. To, uh, I had actually had to go to a conference in Orlando. And my way was paid for the conference, my hotel was paid for, the flights were paid for. And then we have a member of our church who works for Disney who gets free tickets. And within two weeks, all of it was given to me. And I still thought, I don't know, I have to rent a car. I mean, this is, this is, you know, what goes on up here. I would still, I'm not sure, I don't know. If we'll, I mean, I would have to rent a car. That's like a hundred bucks. I'm not sure we're going to pull off this Disney thing. Finally, like, you know, my parenting skills that lay dormant usually kicked in. It was like, you know, probably just put up the hundred bucks and, and pull the trigger on this. So I, even I didn't totally know how to respond to the good news. And so then I went home and, you know, I told my wife and we worked out this little surprise where we were going to tell Emma and I got Emma and I got down on my knees and I was like, Emma, what did you say you wanted for your, for your birthday? And she said, I want to go to Disneyland. And I said, well, I think Jesus heard you because and I told her the story about a phone call where I got to go, had to go to a conference in Orlando. They offered to pay the way not only for me, but for my family and how everything worked out. And you should have seen this. My daughter already has a gigantic smile and just the smile and the, her eyes lit up and she actually started to vibrate, you know, like tremble. Uh, she was so excited. But in the background, laying on the couch was her brother. <laughs> and... <laughs> <laughs> While she's just about to explode with joy, I hear him go, I don't want to go to Disneyland. I'm going to, oh, five days. I'm not going to see my friends. I'm not going to be able to play outside. I'm not going to be able to do this. I'm not going to be able to do that. So I calmly and gently and wisely explained to him why it was important to be excited about this for Emma. Right, that's what I did. Calmly and gently, that's, what, that's exactly how it went. It's just, it's weird how people respond to good news. Sometimes we respond to good news with doubt or cynicism or unbelief. Sometimes we respond to good news and we're like, if this is true, I'm gonna have to do something. It demands a response from me. You know, whether it's get on the plane to Disneyland or whether it's believe something that's incredible sounding, when we hear good news, sometimes for some reason there's something about us humans, we almost would rather things stay bad than have to believe for something that's good. I think I know what that is. It's 
well, it could be a couple things. One, it's we're afraid to get our hopes up. That if we get our hopes up, well, what if we get let down? What if we get disappointed? What if it doesn't work out? And so we're so afraid of disappointment that we just stay low the whole time because we're not sure we could survive getting our hopes up high and then them crashing down. So we keep our hopes nice and low. It's, it's easier to not get disappointed when we don't have anything that we're hoping for. The other thing is, we know, as I mentioned a few seconds ago, we know that if the good news is true, it's going to require something of us. It's going to demand something of us. This is why Christians who say they believe the Bible still have such a hard time believing in things like miracles and healing, because if that's true, then why don't I see it? Why doesn't it happen in my life? And if it happens in your life, but it doesn't happen in my life, that's going to cause me to have to be introspective, and I don't really want to be introspective. I don't really want to do that. I'd rather just call, make you out to be a liar or a charlatan or embellishing things and actually look at, like, well, why doesn't my life line up to, with the New Testament? So I think there's a couple reasons why people have a hard time receiving good news or responding to good news. And in the Gospels, there is this good news that Jesus preaches. It's the kingdom of God that is coming. And one of the effects that the kingdom of God has when it comes to people is it brings healing. About three weeks ago, I stood up here and, and I just preached a sermon on uh, you know, how Jesus prepared his disciples. And he prepared them to do a handful of things. Preach the kingdom, cast out demons, heal the sick. Okay? And you know, I preached that passage or variations of that probably 10 or 12 times over the years here at Truvine. But for some reason, that particular sermon got more feedback and chatter than most of our sermons. I got word back from lots of our discipleship groups about the discussion on that passage. And for those of you that don't know that maybe you're watching, our church has eight groups that meet throughout the week. Every group has about five to ten people in it. And those little groups of five to ten people spend at least a little bit of time discussing the sermon and reviewing that. So those groups, I was getting feedback from a lot of those groups about the discussion, that the discussion was lively or that there needed to be more explanation or uh, there needed to be uh, more instruction or something like that. But, but there was a lot of response to that, maybe more response than some of the other things that we've done on Sunday morning. And so I didn't know at that time three weeks ago, uh, I didn't know one thing and I did know another thing. I did not know at that time three weeks ago that we would be in this position we're in with Anna Wakeman being in the hospital. I di obviously didn't know that. What I did know was we were going to take an additional month. This was already pre-planned. We were going to take an additional month to unpack how Jesus made disciples. You know, he, he taught them to preach the kingdom. So last week we talked about the kingdom of God and Jesus' teaching on the kingdom of God. He taught them to heal the sick, and so today we're going to talk about how Jesus healed the sick. He taught them to cast out demons, and so next week we're going to talk about deliverance ministry and the casting out of demons. And so that was already planned is to kind of like open up, you know, that commission that he gave his disciples to do those things. But I didn't know that right smack in the middle of those two messages, we would have this congregational crisis. And this is probably one of the biggest crises we've ever experienced as a congregation. We've been through some stuff. We've taken some hits, but none of them have been quite at this level. And so I say that as not 
a Bible teacher, but as a pastor who likes to be aware of what's going on in the congregation and actually apply the Bible to the moment, the moment we're in right now is I think Jesus really wants to convince us that this is real. I mean, I, don't, I feel like it would be pastoral malpractice to not connect what we're doing on Sundays with what needs to be done the other six days of the week. And so this is the time to apply it, not down the road, today. So today we're going to look at some stories in Mark, uh, Mark 5 and Mark 6 where Jesus healed people. No, there's so many stories in the Gospels about Jesus healing people, it's hard to actually pick one. You know, I, I, I was going to go with Matthew 8 and Matthew 9 because it's just story after story after story of Jesus healing people. You know, Matthew, the outline of Matthew is just, it begins with his birth, then we get to his baptism, his temptation, then after his temptation, he preaches the Sermon on the Mount, that long, well, it's not that long, actually, it's about 15 minutes long to read, but he preaches that sermon, and then what's the first thing after the Sermon on the Mount? He heals a person. Right after that, he heals another person. Right after that, he heals another person. And then I think he casts out a demon, and then we get to chapter 9, and he heals another person. And then chapter 9 after that, he heals another person. It's like the first things he did after he did the teaching and the baptism and the temptation was he just went around healing people. But I chose to go with Mark chapter 5, which is, uh, Mark chapter 5 is what we would call a parallel passage. In the Gospels, you have the same stories repeated a couple times. So Mark chapter 5 is the parallel of Matthew chapter 8 and 9. And I want to just read these stories. There's, there's kind of four things I want to look at. And it's how people responded to the healing ministry of Jesus or how people responded to the good news that Jesus was able to heal the sick. And you'll find that not everyone responded the same way. Some people responded with faith and some people responded with unbelief to varying degrees. So I want to read through, uh, I'm going to read Mark chapter 5, verses 22 through 43. This includes two stories. This might take a minute to get through, but if you'll follow along, this is just story. One story starts and then another story interrupts it, and then we go back to conclude the original story that we start with, okay? All right, so this is Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 22. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up, and on seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet. And he implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And he went off with Jesus, and a large crowd was following uh, sorry, and Jesus went off with Jairus, and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. A woman who had, been, who had had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not healed, uh, helped at all, but rather had grown worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. So let me just pause real quick. This dad comes up to Jesus and says, I have a little girl who's sick. She's about to die. Could you come to my house and heal her? Jesus agrees. While they're on their way, this other woman who's been bleeding for 12 years interrupts them. So picking up in Matthew 5, uh, 30, 28. For she thought, if I just touch his garment, I will get well. Immediately, the flow of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately, Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, 
turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see this crowd pressing in on you and you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. While he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official saying, your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? So in the midst of this delay, this little girl dies. But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, don't be afraid any longer, only believe. Jesus followed, uh, uh, sorry, and Jesus allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the synagogue official and he saw a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. And entering in, he said to them, why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. They began laughing at him. But putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was. Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which translated means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old, and immediately they were completely astounded. And he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this, and he said that something should be given to her to eat. So I want to comb through those two stories. The first story is the story of Jairus, who's the synagogue you know, kind of leader, and his daughter. His daughter, is, we find out she's 12 years old. And then the second story is the story of, we call her the woman with the issue of blood. So Jairus is a synagogue leader. He's, he's, he's a religious person. You know, he, he's a Jewish person. He goes to the, his synagogue. He prays. He gives. He studies the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. He does all of that. But he has a 12-year-old daughter, and she is gravely ill. Jairus' name actually means, may Yahweh awaken. And so Jairus hears about this Jewish rabbi named Jesus, and Jairus being a good Jewish you know, synagogue leader, goes and he finds Jesus and actually says in uh, verse 22, Jairus came upon and upon seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and he implored Jesus earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. So Jesus, uh, Jairus, this is going to be confusing, sorry. Jairus hears about Jesus. He goes to Jesus. He, he falls on his face. This is a way of showing honor and respect. He understands that Jesus has power that's greater than his own power, even though he's a leader in his synagogue. He goes to Jesus. He falls down. And it says that he implored Jesus with sincerity and in humility. Jairus didn't come demanding anything. He didn't come with swagger. He didn't come with arrogance. He also wasn't coming with a challenge like some of the Pharisees did. The Pharisees would come and they would try to back Jesus into a corner. Well, if you're the Messiah, do this. And if you're the Messiah, do that. Jairus wasn't doing that. That was not his attitude. His attitude was one of a desperate father who had a little girl that was on the verge of death. As I was reading this story this week, I just, you know, it, it, you have to be careful when you do this sometimes, but I tried to put myself in Jairus' shoes because I have a little daughter. And I tried to think about what, what lengths would I go to if my, little, if my little girl was in this situation. And while I'm grateful that my kids have never had any severe health issues, 
I can imagine the feeling of helplessness that a parent would feel when their kid gets cancer or their kid has a severe health issue and you can't do anything and you want nothing more than to be able to help your kid and you want nothing more than to be able to switch places with them and you be the one that has the disease or you be the one that's in the hospital. And this feeling of helplessness that Jairus must have been experiencing, and they actually, it references his wife. So Jairus and his wife would be experiencing with this 12-year-old little girl who is sick. So Jairus is so sincere, he's so earnest that uh, Jesus goes with him. And in the process, this woman crowds in, this woman has been bleeding for 12 years, she crowds in and she touches Jesus's clothes. Now there's a lot of background to this woman. So first of all, she's interrupting Jesus who's on his way to do something. It says that this woman has been bleeding for 12 years. She's had a hemorrhage for 12 years. It is likely that this was some sort of like uh, feminine intimate bleeding, like she was probably menstruating nonstop for 12 years. Well, if you know the laws in the, in the Hebrew Bible in Leviticus, if, if you're bleeding, you're actually not allowed to touch other people, right? You're not even allowed to be in the community. This, it's likely, and it says in the passage, that this woman has been bleeding for 12 years. She's gone to physicians. She's gone to doctors. She's gone to herbalists. She's gone to all these you know, people that could help her naturally. None of them have been able to help her. In fact, it says she got worse. She spent all of her money on medical treatments. No insurance. They didn't have insurance back then. What you could pay for is what you got. She went bankrupt and got worse. In addition to the actual physical issue, and think about if you have a nonstop wound for 12 years. Think about like the anemic feeling that you would have, the weakness. Think about the, the cleanliness issues. I mean, th- this is 2,000 years ago. She also is dealing with social issues. She's not even allowed to go around people. She's not allowed to go to the synagogue. She's not allowed to go celebrate religious uh, holidays with her family. She's not even allowed to be around people. She's not allowed to touch other people. It's possible she hasn't touched anyone in over a decade. No physical touch for 12 years. And so she's experiencing all of this and she takes a risk. She goes into a crowd of people, which is totally forbidden by the the law in Leviticus. She's not allowed to do this. And she has this hunch. I don't know where she got it, but she had this hunch. If I just touch Jesus's garment, if I just touch his robe, I'll be healed. She, unlike Jairus, doesn't go and get in front of Jesus and make a request. She's really trying to do this under the radar. She's trying to do this secretly. She doesn't say a word to him, but she knows, I'm assuming, it's likely that she knew that by touching Jesus, she makes Jesus ceremonially unclean because she's got this bleeding issue. And anyone she touches, not only is she unclean, anyone she touches is unclean. She risks making the whole crowd unclean. She risks making Jesus unclean. You take risks when you are desperate, right? I mean, she, she risked all of her income on this. But I think she's probably at the, her wit's end. And she, gets, she hears about this Jewish rabbi, Jesus, who Seems like he's healing people. And so she takes these risks. She reaches out to touch Jesus. And it's, <laughs> it actually says 
in verse 29, immediately the flow of her blood was dried up. She felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Whatever happens, and I don't know all the metaphysical realities of this, but whatever happens, she feels the, the health immediately. Like she just, she feels it. I don't know if she felt it, if it was her body got warm or it tingled or, you know, I, I don't know how she felt it, but there's this reality where she feels the health return to her body. And Jesus, it says in verse 30, immediately Jesus perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? So not only does she feel power surge through her, Jesus feels it. Jesus actually feels power go out of him. That's crazy to me. I mean, please add that to your understanding of how the kingdom of God works, that sometimes you can feel power. You can be the recipient, and in this case, Jesus is uh, dispersing power, but that needs to be in your worldview. If you have a biblical worldview, the fact that you can feel power receive it from Jesus needs to be in your worldview if you're a follower of Jesus that believes the Bible. So Jesus feels power come out from him, and this is what's interesting. He knows power has gone out, but he turns around and he says, who touched me? I don't know if Jesus already knew who touched him and he was just giving this woman the opportunity or if he genuinely didn't know, but in any case, he says, who touched my garments? The disciples actually say, these disciples are too sassy. They say, well, you see this whole crowd pressing in on you, and you say, who touched me? It says, Jesus looked around, and he saw the woman who had done this. I don't, you know, Jesus was real perceptive. He felt power go out from him. He saw this woman. There's other stories in the Bible where it says Jesus saw that a person had faith to be healed. I don't know how you see faith, but Jesus saw it. So this is about discernment. This isn't your eyeballs. This is your spirit discerning things. It says the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. This is interesting because this is now the second person. We're in maybe a 60-minute window. This is the second person that's fallen down in front of Jesus. Jairus' father came and knelt before him, right? And now this woman is kneeling before him. Again, a sign of honor, humility, and reverence. Jesus says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. And that's essentially the end of her story. He says, your faith has made you well. This is an important statement because we'll see as we read these stories the role that faith plays in healing. And, and we'll unpack that a little more later. Well, Jesus gets back on the original track. He's going to go visit this little girl, of Jairus, uh, Jairus's little girl. And while he's on his way, someone meets them and says, don't bother Jesus anymore. The little girl has, dead, uh, has died. Imagine being the dad hearing that. She's dead. Your little girl died. While you were going to meet Jesus, while this lady was distracting you, your little girl died. Jesus is actually the one that says, don't be afraid, but believe. And he only took three disciples, Peter, James, and John. He had 12 disciples. He told nine of them, stay back. He brought only Peter, James, and John. They come to Jairus' house, verse 38. 
There's a commotion. The people were loudly weeping and wailing. Now, this is kind of an interesting thing that we don't do now, but they actually, when someone died or someone was about to die, in this culture, they would employ professional mourners. These are people, it was their job to come and be with the family, cry with the family, weep with the family, and comfort the family. And that was a job, to mourn and to weep. Well, these professional mourners are there. This is the interesting thing. about Professional mourners know when to start. You know how they know when to start? Because they can identify when someone has died. They don't kick on the professional mourning when someone's sick. They know how to identify a dead body. They know how to test, take, uh, uh, put a mirror up to the face and look for breathing. Uh, they know how to tell whether someone has died. The fact that these professionals are already weeping and wailing and mourning indicates that this little girl really was dead. She didn't go into a coma. She didn't pass out, but she actually did die. So when they come and see the weeping and the wailing, Jesus enters in and he says, why are you making a commotion? The child has not died, but is asleep. And asleep in the Bible is code for dead. But I think Jesus is trying to downplay this because he knows what's about to happen. They began laughing at Jesus. But putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was. Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which translated means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl got up. And remember what Jairus' name means? May Yahweh awaken. And now he's seeing Yahweh awaken his little girl. Immediately the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old. It's interesting to me that this little girl's the same age of the woman who's been bleeding. They're both 12, it's both been 12 years. That this little girl was born the same year that this woman who had the issue of blood began to bleed. I don't know if there's a connection there. I don't know if there's a, a, a deeper meaning there. I just think it's interesting that 12 is referenced in both stories. Now, look what Jesus does in verse 40. They begin laughing at him. Jesus actually is having some faith for healing. He believes that God's going to heal this little girl. And what he, when he says, oh, she's not dead, but she's asleep, they laugh at her. Uh, sorry, they laugh at him. They laugh at Jesus. And what does he do? He puts them out. <laughs> By putting, but putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions, which are Peter, James, and John. So there's only six people in the room with this little girl. So I hope that this challenges, if you have this view of Jesus where Jesus is this calm, he's always friendly, guys. He's sedate. He's docile. He walks around slow, oh, peace be upon you. He pets lambs. You know, listen, I want you to read, Jesus kicked people out of the room. This is like when he went into the, the temple and kicked people out. At least this time he didn't make a whip. Jesus is not this, you know, hippie on Xanax who's always like, oh, you know, Jesus had zeal. Jesus had passion. He was a human being, fully human, more human than you and I. And so Jesus actually, I don't know how polite he was or, you know, I, I wish I could have been there because I would love to see because I need some, you know, I need some evidence that Jesus was mean sometimes. But he kicked people out of the room. 
Everybody that's laughing, out. I don't know how he did it. I don't know if he raised his voice. In my mind, he raised his voice. That's how I imagined it. But I know this. He excused everyone who was not full of faith from the room. And he kept only mom, dad, Peter, James, and John. He excused everyone from the room that was full of doubt, cynicism, and unbelief. We're going to unpack that word unbelief in a little bit. Well, he goes in and he literally says two words to this little girl, and she wakes up. Yahweh awakens her. It's immediate, and it says that they are astounded. And he actually said not to tell anyone about it, but get the little girl something to eat. So now you have both Jairus and his, his daughter and their family, as well as this woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. In one day, both of them experience these incredible stories of healing. I think in both cases, just as I'm trying to relate to them as a, as a human being, when I think of Jairus and his wife, watching their daughter's health fade, when I think of this woman who's been bleeding for 12 years, the word, the word that comes to mind is helpless. You feel helpless. I have felt very helpless this week. As we have waited on updates about Anna Wakeman and as we have prayed, and I said this to John Eric last Sunday when we got the news, I just feel absolutely helpless. What, what can we do? What could we do? I mean, I, felt, I have felt helpless. I want you to know that helplessness is not a bad feeling sometimes. I mean, it feels bad, but it's not a bad place to be because it's when you feel helpless that you actually recognize where your help comes from. I, I have wanted to find help in so many things this week. I have wanted to feel like uh, something is in my control. I can do something to make this better. And I've just been reminded that like, nope, my only help is God. Not me, not, my, uh, not skills, not language, not money, not doctors, not this, not that. The only help that I've been able to turn to in this situation with Anna is God is good, he has healed people in the past, and some promises from the Bible and some specific promises that I feel like he's given us as a church to pray for Anna. All of the help that I've been able to find this week has come from God. So I want you to know, helpless, even though the feeling is one, it's an uncomfortable feeling, helplessness is actually the doorway in to faith that Jesus is the one who can do something here. Helplessness is not the same thing as hopelessness. Now, the story continues in Mark chapter 6. We pick this back up. Jesus has been healing people. I mean, if you just skim through Mark, he's, he's kicked demons out of people. He's healed people. Apparently, Jesus healed people on the wrong day of the week, according to some people's opinion. He's done all of this stuff and then he decides he's going to go home. He's going to take a trip back to his hometown of Nazareth. And this is in Mark chapter 6. In Mark chapter 6, it says, Jesus went out from there and came into his hometown, and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach, he began to teach in the synagogue, and the many listeners were astonished. 
saying, where did this man get these things? And what's this wisdom given to him and such miracles as these performed by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and, his, uh, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? So, they, I mean, they, these people know Jesus. Wasn't he the carpenter guy? Did he build your table? I know his brothers. I know his sisters. I know his parents. I remember when he grew up. Remember when they lost him on the caravan? Oh my gosh, these parents don't know what they're doing. They know Jesus. They know his family. They know their names. They know his occupation. It says in verse 3, they took offense at him. Who, is the, who does he think he is preaching the kingdom, saying he can heal, praying for the sick? I saw him in diapers. I know Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. His parents were even married when she was pregnant. They know all of this. It says they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. He could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he wondered at their unbelief. This is the first group of people he's encountered in this section of Mark that have not fallen down in front of him. They actually get offended by him. This is why I say it's strange how people respond to good news. These people in Jesus' hometown synagogue, they, they have a hard time believing that Jesus is who he says he is. I know Jesus. You know what their problem is? It's familiarity. They're too familiar with Jesus. Familiarity is like a counterfeit of intimacy. Intimacy is when you know someone really well and it causes you to honor them and revere them. Familiarity is when you know someone really well and it causes you to take them for granted, abuse them, mistrust them. God always invites us into intimacy, not familiarity. But they've gotten too familiar with Jesus. They, they're a little too comfortable with Jesus. And so they actually are offended at Jesus. And it says that he, he, well, he says, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and among his own relatives and his own household. Verse five, he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Jesus it doesn't say he chose to do no miracle. It actually says he couldn't. I don't know how that works. I don't totally understand that, but it's in the Bible. He could not do many miracles there except to lay his hands on a few people. And then, this is the crazy thing. So, you know, it says after Jesus healed Jairus' daughter, they were astounded. After Jesus healed the woman who was bleeding for 12 years, it says that she trembled. Now... Jesus is the one who's amazed. What's he amazed at? Their unbelief. Jesus, they, they are so cynical, so full of doubt, so full of unbelief that Jesus is like, this is amazing. It's amazing how cynical you are. It's amazing how uh, you're an unbelieving believer. Unbelief to a believer, I hope you see the contradiction there, Unbelief to a believer is like a fish that doesn't like water. I mean, it just, unbelief is inappropriate for a person who identifies as a believer. And I think that the church is full of unbelieving believers. We, we, ah, well, I, I believe the Bible. 
You believe this part? Well, no, not that part. <laughs> How about this? No, not that part either. Well, then you don't believe the Bible. So don't call yourself a believer, I guess. Uh, I don't know. You can chase me. I'm wearing boots. I'll make it through the ice faster than you will. It's fine. There's a, he's dead now, old Western Pennsylvanian revivalist named Vance Havner who made a statement, and this has stuck with me ever since I heard it, and I'm going to put it up on the screen, and you're going to find it to be unbelievable. He says, only one thing hinders the power of Christ, human unbelief. Now, if you find that unbelievable, you're on thin ice. He actually is saying there's only one thing that hinders, slows down, inhibits the flow of Jesus' power, and it's human unbelief. Now, I know that sounds almost unbelievable. Oh, how could God's power be limited? I mean, but doesn't this passage imply not that Jesus chose to stop doing miracles, but that he couldn't do miracles? It seems like part of what's required for healing and miracles is belief. Someone somewhere has to have faith. Just like you can't have fire without fuel, oxygen, and a flame, if you take any of those three out, you don't have fire anymore. If you take faith out of the equation, you don't have healing. You don't have miracles. Faith has to be present somewhere. Now, faith, it just has to be somewhere. That little girl that Jesus rose from the dead, she probably didn't have faith. But you know who did? Jesus. And maybe her parents. When Lazarus was raised from the dead, he didn't have faith it doesn't seem like Mary and Martha had faith, but you know who had faith? Jesus. This woman who was bleeding for 12 years that reached out and touched Jesus' garment, she had faith. Someone present, someone in the equation has to have faith. We've been thinking this week about the story, and John Eric referenced it in worship, about these, these guys that they had a, bro, a friend who was paralyzed, and he lived his life laying on a mat or a cot. And they took him to Jesus, and they they couldn't get in the house that Jesus was in, so they went up on the roof, busted a hole in the roof, and lowered the man through the roof. That is a picture of his friends having faith. So much faith that they busted a hole in the roof to lower this man down so that they could heal him. Someone somewhere has to have faith. Faith has to play into the process. When there's not belief, it seems like the power of Jesus is hindered in some way, and I don't understand all of that. I just, I read this passage, and I match that passage with all the passages where Jesus affirms those who do have faith. I say, faith is obviously a necessary part of this process. I think that in some ways, we have almost elevated unbelief over belief because we think that's compassionate and we massage the egos of unbelieving believers rather than calling them back to what's taught in the pages of the Bible and I just don't think the world needs unbelieving believers faithless people of faith the world needs people who 
believed the whole book. I mean, at some point, somebody somewhere has got to believe this whole thing. And I figure it might as well be us. John Wimber said that at a conference in the 80s. We might as well go ahead and believe this whole thing. We all say that we do. So now we put it into action. Now, regarding putting it into action, the story continues just a little bit further. Just going to the next verse, and, and this is how the disciples responded. So you have Jairus and his wife's response. You have the woman with the issue of blood and her response. You have Jesus' hometown synagogue and their response. And finally, you have the response of the disciples. It says in Mark 6, 7, Jesus summoned the 12 and began to send them out in pairs. This should sound familiar to you. He sent them out in pairs. He gave them authority over unclean spirits. And then uh, Mark six twelve and 13, they went out and preached that men should repent. They were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. You know, anointing with oil was happening before James prescribed it in James 5. They were anointing them with oil. So this is how the disciples responded. They said, we will participate in the ministry of Jesus. It will multiply through us. So you have Jairus and his wife they come on behalf of a sick person. They're not the ones with the illness. They come on behalf of a person with illness, but they come in faith. You have the woman with the issue of blood. She's the one that had the illness. She comes with faith. Then you have the Jesus' hometown synagogue, no faith. In fact, so much unbelief that Jesus is amazed by it. And now you have the disciples who are now sent out to multiply the healing ministry of Jesus. And they do that. And we talked about that a few weeks ago, so I'm not going to rehash that. I want to read a quote from A.B. Simpson uh, from the Christ in the Bible commentary about healing. A.B. Simpson says, divine healing is his normal provision for the believer. It is something that is included in our redemption rights, something that is part of the gospel of his grace, something that is already recognized as within his will and not requiring a special revelation to justify us claiming it. There's a couple of different ways to think about healing. Some people don't believe that healing happens at all. Just it, it, That's done, that's for the old days in the Bible, but we don't do that anymore, okay? So that's one view. We, we don't hold that view. We never have held that view, and we never will hold that view. There's a second view that it's called providential healing, which is just like, well, healing happens whenever God wants it to. I mean, anything is possible, so maybe. That's providential healing, and that's probably the view that most Christians have is that anything is possible, so I guess maybe we'll pray. There's a third view that we called, we at Truvine called divine healing, which is that this is actually God's will because it's part of God's nature. That uh, God is not predisposed to sickness, God is predisposed to health. And health and healing just overflow out of God naturally because he's the healer. He called himself the healer. He's the source of all healing, whether it comes through prayer or medicine or whatever else, therapy, all healing actually originates from God. It might come through uh, other avenues, and God has said clearly there are certain avenues he does not use, and there are others that he does use. And so we believe in what's called divine healing, which is that 
God is the source of all healing, and we receive healing through faith. Faith is not the source of the healing. Faith is what we access healing through. It's, you have to think about this in a weird way. Like, how do you, if you have cough medicine, how do you access the cough medicine? Well, through the little spoon, that nasty little spoon that you, you never wash in between, I know. That little spoon... You put the medicine in the spoon and then you take the spoon, right? Is the spoon healing you? No. If the spoon is empty, will it do anything? No. What's actually healing you? The medicine. But the spoon is the vehicle that you receive the medicine through. Faith is the vehicle that we receive healing through. Does that make sense? Faith in faith, in faith as, as accomplishes nothing. But faith in Jesus gives us access to everything that we need to receive health. A.B. Simpson would say it this way, and I tend to agree, the same way that we approach the forgiveness of sin and salvation is the way that we approach, should approach healing, which is you take it by faith. Every single one of you here that gave your life to Jesus did so as a, in a response to faith. You know, I don't know about you, did you get something stamped when you did it? I mean, did... Did you get something in your mailbox the next day? Congratulations on putting your faith in Jesus. No, you, you believed that it was true enough that you, your heart responded to it. And that's the same way that we deal with divine healing is you believe that it's true enough that your heart responds to it. Well, here's how we would want to respond today. There's a couple different ways to do this. Some of you might actually have, and some of you are probably watching online. In fact, I'm sure more of you are watching online that are present in the room. Uh, some of you might actually need to be healed. You might have a health issue. This could be a sickness or an injury. And you could use prayer. This could be a long-standing issue. This could be something that's just new, um, but you would like to be prayed for, and maybe you have faith, or if you don't have faith, we have a team of people that do have faith that will pray for you, okay? These would be kind of like Jairus's uh, parents or those men that lowered the man through the roof. So if you are in need of healing, we're gonna have a prayer team up front for you to come and be prayed for. Maybe you don't need healing, but you have a loved one that needs healing. This is kind of the situation we're in with Anna Wakeman. We are standing on behalf of her. If you would like to gather with two other people to pray for that person, we'll give you that opportunity as well. Or maybe you're not sick, maybe you don't have a loved one that's sick, but you're having a hard time believing that this is real, you can come up and be prayed for too. Thank you for listening to True Vine's Sermon of the Week. This podcast and an archive of previous episodes can be found at blessphiladelphia.com